Thanks, guys. Amen. I invite you to open your Bibles to Colossians chapter 2, teaching through Colossians this summer. And the title of the message is A Spiritual Checkup. This is the Apostle Paul writing a letter, and in this letter he is giving this spiritual checkup. It's weird when, when folks say they have a doctor's appointment. Some people are afraid to go to the doctor, and I've actually heard people say, I, I don't want to go to the doctor. He or she may find something. <laughs> well, if they find something, it's because it's there, and it would be a good idea to know that it's there so that you can do something about it. Well, that's what Paul writes. You go to the doctor, they can use a stethoscope. They can check your heart with the EKG. They can use a tongue depressor, gloves, blood work, Many other things to discover what's going on physiologically with you. Eddie, is that the right word, physiologically? Thank you. He's a doctor. I should have checked that with him beforehand. But Paul's concerned about their heart, their mind, and their walk. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. Let me read this passage from Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Colossians 2, 1 through 7. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf. And for those who are at Laodicea, and for those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love, and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this so that no one would delude you with persuasive argument, for even though I am absent in body, nevertheless... I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good discipline and the stability of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, having been firmly rooted and now being built up in him and established in your faith, just as you were instructed and overflowing with gratitude. Paul says to these people, many of them, most of them, that he had never met. It's possible that Paul had never been to Colossae or Laodicea. It's possible he had, and these are just new people. But it's very possible that Epaphras was the only pastor they knew. Epaphras has made this long journey from Colossae to Rome, probably where Paul was in a Roman cell, a prison. And Paul says, I want you to know the struggle that I have on your behalf. What is Paul struggling about? He's struggling in prayer on their behalf because he wants a couple of things to happen. But I want you to catch the context. Paul is struggling... He's in jail, for crying out loud. He's probably chained to a Roman guard, or has at least had his freedom taken away from him. And Paul, I never see Paul say in one of his letters, hey, how about getting me out of here? Bake me a cake with a file in it. Get, do something. Call the attorneys. He is struggling not for his present condition. He's struggling on their behalf. And there's a couple of things he wants to see happen. I think about struggle in prayer. There's times in prayer you bow your heads and you're not even sure what to say. We see Jesus struggle in prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that he would be betrayed and arrested and ultimately put to death on a cross. He struggles. Paul is struggling. And he's struggling on their behalf. He even mentions Laodicea. He's going to encourage them to share this letter with Laodicea, church that's a little over 10 miles away, little town, Laodicea. He's concerned about the teaching that is heading their way. We see this throughout the letters of the New Testament. There's false teaching. A couple of things. You need to know this. You're going to hear me say this probably every Sunday. But the two primary false teachings was either this, Jesus isn't enough. So it's fine that you've come to faith in Christ. They would acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. These were the Judaizers that would say, that's well and good, but you need to add this to the cross. 
And we know anything you add to the cross becomes an enemy of the cross. The others was the Gnostic heresy, which was beginning in the first century, kind of became full fruit in the second century. But it was Jesus isn't fully God. Because Jesus is apart from God. There's God who they would consider holy, couldn't have anything to do with sinful earth. And he had these emanations of beings that finally got down to an evil enough being that could touch earth. And that wasn't Jesus. And Jesus wasn't God. So he says, I'm struggling on your behalf. And first thing he wants to see happen is that their hearts would be encouraged. Heart, general word, but it, it literally meant the center of your being. And Paul's simply saying, I want every fiber of your being to be encouraged. I want you to be built up. I'm, I'm calling you near. I don't know if y'all remember in the hymn book, there's a song that talks about the paraclete. I wonder as a kid, what's paraclete's got to do with church? I, I didn't know, but that's the word here. It means to call alongside of. The Holy Spirit's been called alongside of us. And Paul is saying, I'm, I'm praying that your hearts would be encouraged. I'm praying that God would come near to you, to call to one side, and that you be knit together. Error is very divisive, and that's what's happening in the church at Colossae and ultimately the church in Laodicea and really other churches that Paul wrote to. Error will divide you. Not knowing the truth will cause you to stumble, will cause you to second guess, will cause you to wander. And so Paul says, I'm praying that in light of this Colossian heresy, that unity would take place, and it's love that's going to unite them. What, what can unite us in church? Think about your church that you go to. I've been in some churches that apparently were united over their church softball team. That's what you see when you walk in. You see the trophy case. Not a lot about Jesus, but it's all about softball. It could be sports. You're not going to believe it, but there's people in here who not, are not united. Not everybody here today is a Clemson fan. There's some Gamecock fans. There's some Georgia fans. There's some Wofford fans. So your church is not going to be united around the sports team that you cheer for. It may be that you're going to a church that have people that don't like the team you cheer for. I don't know if that would one day become along the grandstand. This is the Clemson church. You notice it's orange. This is the church that worships chickens. So you're not going to be united around sports teams. You're not going to be united around fashion. You're not going to be united around background. But you can be united around Christ. I want you to picture it this way. If your church is like a wheel and you have spokes in the wheel that lead to what? What's in the center? The hub. The closer those spokes get to the center, the closer they get to Christ, the closer they also get to each other, right? So what unites us in church is a love for Jesus Christ. Those other things which are well and good, maybe your background or your allegiance or even softball, can be secondary. I was sharing this illustration in India. I got a picture I'd ask him, I said, y'all know, know where a bicycle is? I wasn't preaching this same message, but I was talking about unity in the church. So it's about 500 pastors literally over a potato patch. They had dug all the potatoes out the week before, set a tent up, and that's my interpreter. We call them interrupters. And I asked about this bicycle. The cool thing about the bicycle is they didn't go ask permission of the owner of this bicycle. So there's a pastor back there thinking, what are they doing with my bicycle? What's this guy, this gringo from the United States, I don't use that word, what's he going to do on my bicycle? But I was pointing out the, the tire is like the church. You can't really see the spokes too well, but there's spokes, and they get closer to each other as they get closer to Christ. So bottom line, if you're going to have unity in the church, if you're going to have unity in Colossae and Laodicea and in your church and in the chapel, 
It's going to be because Jesus Christ is the center of everything. So Paul says, I'm struggling on that because I'm not seeing. I'm seeing evidence that maybe there's fracture happening, and that fracture starts with false teaching. In fact, Jesus put it this way in the Upper Room Discourse, chapters 13 through 17 of the Gospel of John. He says, they will know you're my followers. How? By your love for one another. There's some churches that just love to fight. <laughs> we had a church group come here one day. I said, this is several years ago. I said, how are things going? I said, we had a fight break out at church last night. We had to call the police. And it was two women. One got up and started talking about the other one, and the other one got up and said, are you talking about me? She said, you got that right. And they went out and had to call the police. They were going to create T-shirts that said, nobody fights like Baptists, but they didn't. So if Christ is going to be what unites us, anything that would divide us becomes secondary. It's not important. Jesus has got to be the center. So two things Paul is going to encourage your heart with. Number one, that you're knit together, and then that you attain to the wealth that comes from the full assurance. There's a wealth, a treasure, a valuable bestowment that without you won't enjoy the, the Christian life. In fact, if you don't know you're headed for heaven, you, you're not going to look forward to getting there. If you've got any doubt about it, if that's your ultimate destination, you're going to struggle in this life. So Paul says, attaining to the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding. In other words, the treasure that is confidence in your salvation. Why? Why would we be unconfident in salvation? If we focus on ourselves, if we think I'm the one responsible for my salvation, you're going to struggle. But again, Jesus is the center. And once you get that straight, you will have confidence resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery. And you see the word mystery here? Paul is smacking right in the face of the Gnostic heresy. They talked about mystery. They talked about hidden things. And the only people that could know the truth, the only people to get the final, ultimate unlock of the mystery and the secret are the enlightened. And they controlled how you got enlightened, and they would look at people like us and say, well, you're not enlightened. The reason you don't understand what we're saying is you haven't been enlightened. Well, Paul's saying, yeah, you've been enlightened if you've come to faith in Christ because the mystery has been unlocked, and that is Christ himself who were hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The mind has been full of diamonds and has finally been unlocked. All the teaching of the Old Testament that pointed to Christ has come to fulfillment in the Messiah. Yeshua has walked among us, Jesus our Savior. And so Paul says, check your heart. Make sure it's encouraged on those truths but also check your mind when your mind is filled with biblical truth the emotions respond properly paul says in the next verse verse four i say this so so what is it that he said he's just talked about jesus being the center of the church jesus being the fullness and completion of the mystery of god the fullness of god's promise all those prophecies of god and the messiah coming in the old testament jesus has fulfilled them i say this so that no one delude you delude you to beguile, to misreckon, to influence by trickery. The false teachers were often wrong, but never in doubt. And they had a persuasive argument. The problem is, if the premise is wrong, then the conclusion that comes from that premise is also wrong. I coached a high school baseball team a few years ago. In fact, it was in Gastonia, Isaiah. And one of the, one of the struggles was our players wouldn't show up sometime for practice because they had a soccer game. So I was trying to convince them. Pick one or the other. You need to pick baseball. Leave soccer alone. And I said, you know, as soccer has gained in influence in the United States, as it has gained in popularity, so have gas prices have raised too. 
And they looked at me, you, are you sure, serious about that, Coach? Yeah. Well, those are true. Gas prices went up, but it had nothing to do with soccer. But that's what's happening with these tricksters, these ones that are beguiling and deluding the Colossian, Colossian Christians. And that's where the enemy attacks. The enemy will attack your mind. So Paul has not only done a checkup of their heart, now he's saying, check your mind. We see Satan, this has been his ploy all along. Do you remember the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve? What did Satan do? He goes to Eve and says, has God said you can't eat of any tree of the garden? Is that what God had said? No, that's not what God had said. God had said you, can't, you can eat of every tree of the garden, just the one in the middle of the garden you cannot eat, the, true, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you can't eat of that. And that's been Satan, you see that throughout Scripture. He's a tricker. He beguiles you. He gives you false information. He leads you astray. And you will see even preachers today that will give you half-truths that are full lies. Satan did it again to the Son of God. Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, being tempted by the devil. Remember what he said? If you are the Son of God. Well, was Jesus the Son of God? Absolutely. Did he need to prove that to the devil? No, the devil knew he was the Son of God. But the devil said, if you really are the Son of God, turn those stones into bread. Well, if you haven't eaten in 40 days, rocks start looking good. And I've been at the Mount of Temptation in Israel. And there are some stones there that look just like a loaf of bread. And if you hadn't eaten in 40 days, you start thinking, and could Jesus have turned the stone into bread? Yeah, he was fully God. But Satan wanted him to do it to prove something that Jesus didn't have to prove. In fact, the cool thing is, every time Satan tempted Jesus, Jesus overcame with what? scripture jesus knew the truth men and women we've got to know the truth because the truth will let you know the difference between a lie and a truth so satan tempts jesus and it even happens at the cross you remember jesus is now on the cross the passerbyers under the inspiration of the enemy are saying the same thing if you really are the son of god come down off the cross prove it well jesus didn't come down off the cross because there's a purpose in the cross he knew the truth and the truth was about to set men and women free. So Paul says, I'm saying all this so that you don't get tricked. I'm teaching you the truth so that these false teachers won't delude you, won't persuade you otherwise. And they'll use persuasive argument, meaning enticing words. Their argument sounds good. The problem is the basis of their argument isn't good. It's false. And he says, even though I'm absent in body, I'm present in spirit. So Paul's saying, I haven't met you. You've never had the privilege of seeing my face. I've never seen your face. But I've heard about you, and I'm writing a letter to you to encourage you because I have talked to Epaphras. So Paul rejoices over them and encourages them with what he's rejoicing about. Even though I'm absent in body, I'm present with you in spirit. And I'm rejoicing to see two things. Number one, your good discipline. This was a military term. Paul had seen the Roman soldiers, and I think he's saying, you know what? In the same way that these Roman soldiers are disciplined to wear the right garments and behave the right way, a believer in Christ is also disciplined. Fulfilling the spiritual disciplines, whether it be for us, it's scripture memory and fasting and prayer and worship and, and things like that that grow us up in the faith. So Paul is saying, I'm rejoicing. Even though Paul's in a prison cell, even though he's lost his freedom, even though, as we talked about last week, he had gone through shipwreck and beating, he had been beaten with rods, had been beaten with whips. And yet Paul says, it brings me joy to hear that new believers are walking in Christ. And first of all, they have good 
discipline. Also, the stability of their faith in Christ Jesus. Something that is firmly established. Paul says you can have stability in your faith because what you're clinging to is worthy to cling to. So stability in your faith. You ever notice you find something in the last place you look? Have you ever looked for something for hours? You finally find it. Do you start? Do you keep looking after that? No. Why? Because you found what you're looking for. Here's the truth of the gospel. God has found you. And you don't have to look elsewhere. You can build your house on the solid rock. The foundation that it's built on is worthy to have a foundation built on. And the building that springs up that we'll look at in the next point is based on that. So Paul is countering the false teaching with the truth. The more you study Scripture, the more you're going to see Satan lie to you and tell you, you'll be happier if you do this. You'll be more of a man if you do this, more of a woman if you do this. This will make you fulfilled. And you realize, no, my fulfillment comes fully, completely, and only in Jesus Christ. So we've had a checkup of our heart. Paul says, check your mind. And then the last two verses, he says, check your walk. He says, therefore. So you've got to understand, we're looking to see what it's there for. You look back to the therefore, and basically the teaching that he's given you up to this point is, therefore, as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. What's he saying? He's saying, think about to your salvation. How did you receive Christ Jesus as Lord? Ephesians chapter 2 is awesome in this. Well, one, it was by grace, Ephesians 2, 8, 9. It's by grace that you're saved through faith. So one way you receive, or not one way, but part of your receiving of Christ as your Lord and Savior is, is by God's grace. What does grace mean? It means receiving something you didn't deserve. You didn't earn it. You didn't bring something in your hand and say, God, is this good enough? Can I be saved now? You come empty-handed. You become needy to, to the Savior. And so walking in the same way you got saved, first of all, means by God's grace. Also by faith. So you've been saved by grace through faith. But I think also an important thought is this. How did you come to faith in Christ? Ephesians 2, 1 says you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You get about verse 4. But God, being rich in his mercy, has made you alive. So you come to God dead. You live your life that way too. You've died to the old self. You've died to the old way of life. You're alive in Christ and yet you live your life the same way you got saved. I think some people look back on salvation and they've taken their spiritual life to themselves. They've kind of walked away. As needy as they were when they came to faith, they're living the Christian life without the power of God displayed in their life. So Paul's bringing them back to that. You're being lied to. You're being tricked by these beguilers, by false teachers. You need to go back to the beginning, first of all, and acknowledge there was a salvation experience where you trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior. You gave him your heart. He's called you into fellowship and faith with him. You've been saved. But now live your life that way. Don't change. It's not about you. It wasn't about you then. It's not about you now. It's all about the power of God at work in and through you. So four things he says about that. If you're going to walk in the grace, the faith, and the deadness that you had at salvation, first of all, you're firmly rooted. This is the one that is past tense. This has already happened. If you're a Christian, if you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, you have been firmly rooted. What took place in the past at salvation is now permanent. You look at a tree, and you may not see the roots. It's probably a good thing if you don't see the roots. <laughs> if you're planting vegetables this summer, 
I don't encourage you to, you know, the squash is starting to bloom, and now you've got some plants there, and say, you know, I want to see the roots. You pull them up, what's going to happen? The plant's going to die. You better eat the one squash that it produced because you're not getting any more. But if you see the, the plant, if you see the tree, if you see the fruit, it's because there's a root. And what Paul's saying is you have been firmly rooted how? In Christ. You've been established, rooted in him. Now, continuing action, you're being built up. This is like a building. Again, you can go look at skyscrapers in big cities. We don't really have skyscrapers around here because they'll get blown over in hurricanes. But you go to bigger cities, there's skyscrapers. You may not have seen them put the foundation down, but I promise you they spent months, if not years, digging, pouring concrete, driving steel to put down a foundation that that building could be built on. So you're firmly rooted, past action, present action, part of sanctification is you're being built up again in Jesus. You're also established in your faith. It's God who establishes believers. Let your roots go down deep enough into him that he can establish you and build you up. You've been established in the faith just as you were instructed. And last, you're overflowing with gratitude. Literally, excess of gratitude. Grateful language to God in worship is gratitude. This should be a continuous process in a believer's life that God has saved you, but God is incredibly doing things in your life that is building you up, that's establishing you in the faith. There's fruit being born through your life because of the presence of Christ in your life. And you turn back to God and say, thank you. You're grateful. Jesus tells the story, doesn't tell the story, this happened in Luke chapter 17. Jesus encounters ten lepers. You remember the story? Ten lepers. When they see him coming, they call out for mercy. You remember what he says to them? He says, go and show yourselves to the priest. Why did he say that? Well, the priest is the one that had declared them unclean so they couldn't associate with other people. So what he's saying is, you're going to be healed by the time you get there, so go show yourselves to the priest. Ten lepers. As they begin that journey, I think as they take that first step of faith, they're healed. One leper turns back and cries out in a loud voice, thanking God. Remember what Jesus says? Weren't there ten of you? And why is it this foreigner, this Samaritan, is the only one that turned back to thank me? I don't want to be like that leper, or those nine lepers. I want to be like the one that is grateful. So Paul says, you've been firmly rooted. You're being built up in him. You're being established in the faith. And you are overflowing with gratitude. God does things in our lives. We turn right around and praise him and thank him. And God does more things in our lives. Bow your heads with me. I want you to think for a minute. What are you thankful for today? Can you look back over your Christian life and say, you know what? God has done incredible things in my life. Maybe you're a new believer and all you right now got to be thankful for is thank 